0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Francisca. I will be taking a break next week, so I will have an old episode streaming for you next week. So it's great for any of our newer listeners or some of our older listeners who missed that episode last year. I know Pesach is a busy time, and I will use that to take a much-needed break. The throwback episode for today is the From Sex Ed panel, and the reason for it is because we mention it in this episode, and I actually re-listened to it, so I would recommend you re-listen to it as well. Last week, we had Rabbi Avrami Zippel, who talked about his new book, and make sure you order a copy. He said something along the lines of children of Shluchim go one of two ways. Either they continue the path of their parents or they go and they do not want to do that. Well, today's episode is the opposite extreme example because not everybody who doesn't do shlichos goes off on their journey as much as our guest today talks about being off the Darach. I don't like using that terminology. I would like to correct it to being on his own Darach just because everybody is on their own Darach and it's not for us to judge what Darach people are on or off of. So I would like to remind you too. Listen to the other podcasts on JewishCoffeeHouse.com that are so valuable and interesting and entertaining. So if you like this podcast, you'll probably enjoy the other ones as well. And it's linked in the show notes. Next, I'm helping companies with video content as well as podcasting. I'm starting a done-for-you service at K Productions or restarting it. And I'm taking on a few new clients after Pesach. So if you or anyone you know is looking for this kind of service, please refer them to me. Referrals are the best way for you to support me on the show, but not the only way. If you share this podcast with other friends or just rate it and review it on whatever podcast listening app you're listening to, that's another great way to support me. One of my favorite ways, actually, is for you to send me a personal note or A note on the Francisco Show discussion group. We're hopefully an encouraging conversation. Any feedback and thoughts are always welcome. I hope you have a beautiful Hesach and you feel the liberation from all the things that we are enslaved to in today's day and age. Here we go. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, France Dance. Today with us, we have Shmuley Myers from Slovakia, currently in Indiana. Okay, welcome to the show, Shmuley.
1: Sure, thanks for having me.
0: You have such an interesting story. I know we don't focus so much on stories of musicians anymore. We used to, you can definitely go back and listen to the first hundred episodes on this podcast. We go deep and into it. The reason... We are doing this episode today is because there is a lot of conversation around questioning the beliefs and the way we observe and conduct religion and Jewish orthodoxy as it is. If this is not a conversation you want to hear, you can definitely log off right now, but I want to go to the core questions and the story behind somebody who, who questions what we were raised with. So let's just jump in, tell us a little bit about yourself. We'll start from the beginning, tell us how you were raised, what was life in Slovakia like, and then we'll go from there.
1: I was raised Chabar, my father's a shliach there. I grew up in kind of a very interesting background because there weren't any, there still aren't any really Jewish schools except for kindergarten in Slovakia. Our family, we go like an hour drive away to Vienna and the school that I went to there, it was more, it was kind of like a hater, even like it had secular studies. And it was just very eclectic. So it was in one class, it was like Pilashers, and then Svardim, and Bukharim, and Chabad, and Ashkenaz. So it was everybody there.
0: How many kids were in that class?
1: It was actually a very small school. It was like nine kids.
0: The whole school was nine kids?
1: My class was nine kids. The whole school was like 30.
0: Okay. And kids came from other countries also?
1: Uh, no, I was the only one. It was mainly, it was local.
0: And you went every day?
1: Yeah. we the, My siblings still like to have a driver who takes them back and forth every day. And I was there till eighth grade. And then, I mean, I didn't really have a choice, kind of. I was sent to yeshiva. So I went there for, I was in kind of a few different places. I went to London. I didn't like it in London. I went to fast, and then that yeshiva closed. So I went to Iowa.
0: What age did you leave home?
1: At... Thirteen.
0: Okay, and you're the oldest in your family.
1: I'm no, I'm the fifth actually of thirteen.
0: Thanks for that context.
1: Well, I guess one thing which kind of is important, I won't go too much into it because, like, a, I'm not Prince Harry and I don't go with that vibe. But it just it is important for the story. I things were very very strict at home in terms of religiosity and just stuff in general. I definitely felt a lot of times that kind of acceptance was conditional on being chabad enough or religious enough. Now, once I'm saying that, I will also say, you know, the dynamic has completely changed and things are really wonderful now. But definitely when I was growing up, both in school and also at home, it was definitely very, very strict and sometimes kind of toxic. And that did kind of influence my view of what, you know, generally we assume our higher powers are like from what our authoritative figures are like. And I definitely kind of had that idea from God from what I had about the Sarateta figures in my life. So I was in yeshiva and in school actually also in general. I have to say I generally had a fairly lonely childhood. I was generally more quiet and unfortunately often that opens one up to bullying and stuff like that.
0: Yeshiva you say once you left home.
1: Actually it was it was also at school. School and then a few times in in, in a few different yeshivas. Then when I was around eighteen, nineteen actually, when I was in a really good yeshiva that I was enjoying myself, I sort of began realizing that Chabad wasn't really for me. And it it was more, I guess, I'm a bit more like intellectual type. Like it wasn't really so much the rebellion. It was more like I saw what it stood for or what it stands for, I guess, hasn't really changed. And I had a lot of questions about stuff and things about like just, you know, answers to the questions in life about either science or meaning or stuff like that. And I didn't really feel that Chabad philosophy, if it is a philosophy, and chose those accurately. I also saw then that I had a really great passion for music and that I wasn't really getting that in yeshiva. So I told my parents that I would like to go somewhere to study music. And again, to give them credit, they were completely open about it. So I then I went two years to a really amazing music school, actually, not sponsored anything. I would really recommend it. It's called Mizmor in Israel. It's for Orthodox people, but it's a really incredible music school. They have like top musicians in Israel teaching there and they're closed on Shabbat and Chagim. And they have the vocal classes are separate for boys and girls. Those were really incredible years I studied there. And I think that was when I started seeing other yeshivas and other kids from other groups and realizing how much I had missed out on growing up in Chabad yeshivas. Cause in their education, Broadly speaking, they tend to be a bit more insular. It's generally like, you know, Gemara and stuff, but then there's just Chabad Hasidus. It's not like you don't learn other views. And then I started seeing that there were other views that made much more sense to me in terms of their answers to stuff. And then I was still kind of, I guess, not really keeping Chabad, but I was still kind of respectful towards it.
0: Okay, could you give examples when you mean keeping Chabad? You're talking about Chabad like it's <laughs> different from Judaism.
1: Oh, fair enough. Yeah, additional things like, for example, davening Nusukhari, well, keeping a beard, I guess that's a really big one. I guess, well, that's not only Chabad, but I'm saying that's more like, you know, in, in the modern Orthodox Lithish world, that's something that's not done. Studying Chabad texts, having a certain degree of authority. For example, if, if I would see an answer on something from the L'Bavitch Rebbe, Nowadays, you know, if I have, the first I would say, you know, I respect that. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's accurate or correct. At that time, even if I didn't really understand it, I would say, well, you know, this is an authority. I'm trying to think what else. A lot of just like Hasidishim and Hagyam. I was trying to think back. It's difficult for me to remember Chale-vizhral. now. Chalavishral. Yeah, I remember that was a big one. I don't know if Negel is that more.
0: I think everyone does Negel <laughs> okay. some People do it at their beds, maybe. And others wait till they get to the bathroom
1: yeah always wearing tits. i think that's something a lot of people do but i know in chabad it's it's kind of a big thing yeah i'm trying to think of other examples but mainly it was that it was more like kashkaffikli yeah after two years there i decided i want to go to america and so i applied at yeshiva university i was there for a year and that was where i kind of i guess seriously in terms of like I remember when I was there like Arab Shashan, I like I proper I went to three of the rabbis there and I like I took a proper Hataras in the Darim from Chabad Minhagim. They weren't sure that I needed one, but they said like, you know, it makes sense if you want to leave it like just, you know, they so they did it, which was really nice. At that point, I remember that was actually the year I also shaved off my beard. I think that kind of being in that environment kind of gave me the freedom really to just completely kind of throw everything off. Uh, even though I was still driven at the time. And when you say uh, like, everything, but,
0: you mean everything <laughs> Chabad, all the Chabad menhagim, or you t- you're talking about everything, everything?
1: So that was still everything, like all the extra Chabad menhagim. In fact, at that point, I guess I still had, like, that was when I really started learning with other people, like the other sources of things. And I don't know, like for some people, it's not a big deal for me. I really started getting into like how Chabad answers different Ashkafic things and the sources of Hasid and of Kabbalah like that. And I was very passionate about it. So I think in retrospect, I, I would sometimes walk up to like Chabad people. And I'm like, hey, you know, the Zohar is a forgery and stuff like that. But the, <laughs> the, a th- the, the Zohar. So I was kind of in that phase. But generally it's more just like the Chabad Hagem, Because I was in a place where I could really look into all the sources. About like Torah versus science and stuff like that. I was there for a year. And then I realized, by the way. Also, I love the place. They're incredible in terms of religiously, in terms of educational, everything. It happens to be their music program isn't too great. It's very, very small. I mean, to be fair, part of it was my naivete. I was like, well, of course, any American university, they'll have an amazing jazz study program. So I decided to go into film scoring. In retrospect, I'm not sure why. It just appealed to me, even though I'm not really such a movie whiz. So I applied to this college In I applied to a few. I got accepted in Hollywood. California. And yeah, so that was where I spent my last four years. And that was where I really started going through a big kind of religious, I really started questioning kind of everything, let the chips fall wherever they may. And I guess I would distinguish, that was also where not that long afterwards, actually, like if four or six months afterwards, that was where I pretty much stopped keeping everything. By everything, I mean like Shabbos, Kashrus, uh what else is there? Um, Telen, pretty much everything. Yeah, I guess I would distinguish Chabar, I definitely left for intellectual reasons. That was something that I still feel like, I just don't think it. it's a movement that makes sense to me. I don't think it provides accurate answers for everything. I don't think halakhically, like, I completely respect, you know, that people, that there's minhag and stuff, and that people decide to keep. For me, I think it was a bit kind of over in terms of like things that are minhug, but don't really have what I understand as like a a good purpose or even like a a good source for them. Orthodoxy in general, that was something that was a bit more, it just wasn't working for me. It was more of like a a dynamic thing. Like I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, like I have any fundamental problems with like Jewish theology or stuff like that. It was more of like, that the kind of, there were people in my life that I didn't, feel were a good role model for religion and i felt i was being much more accepted in the secular world and yes you know at the end of the day we do generally make a lot of decisions in life based on the people that are happy and that make us happy and that we feel accepted by and not the people who kind of made our acceptance conditional well, I guess there are a few things where I kind of wonder sometimes how the halachic framework fits with human nature.
0: Okay, give me examples. I want to go there for a minute.
1: One big thing for me that I'm still not quite sure about, even though I have to say after listening to your episode on from sex Ed, that really kind of changed my perspective. I realized that not necessarily everything I grew up with was at, was like accurate, like what halacha actually insists, and a lot of it was kind of just minhag and personality. I think the very strong insistence against people having what's it called intersexual coed relationships at all, even not sexual before marriage, I think it's a bit over. And I'm not saying in terms of like Don Juan, I'm saying even just in terms of
0: interactions and access.
1: Yeah. Or even just like just healthy human nature, like not even once a month, not even once every two weeks, like just no touch, no sexual intercourse, obviously, Depending on, you know, I mean, again, a lot of it is just Chumrah and Minah. We hit puberty generally at what, like 13, 14 people, even at like the Chazidish community, they get married like what, 19, a lot of people 21. What does a healthy, normal person do like before then? Like, you know, there's not really any options for them. A lot of them don't learn how to interact. And I did get an answer from your podcast that people don't necessarily always go from zero to everything. Um, that was something, a good point that you brought up. And you know that there's, you know, they have kind of a process. But in general, I don't think that the, even like the healthy framework going, just like whatever it is, Rambam, Yisri, a Perak, Chofala, for wherever he has I'm, I'm that whole thing I'm a little confused
0: because I feel like you're jumping. I You brought up uh, um, just healthy interactions for, you know, teenagers with the opposite sex, which just gives some more of a healthier dynamic in terms of being able to Perceive the other gender as human beings. Yeah. Okay, That's number one. Number two is restrictions in a committed marital Jewish relationship and the restrictions that come with that. So wh- which one are you talking about?
1: Actually, once, I think after marriage, I think that system pretty much makes sense to me. That's actually something that I think is fine, even in terms of like taras and and stuff like that, that I, I kind of understand. It's more before that. Like, let's say if someone has a girlfriend, not being able to have sex, not being able really to touch, except for like maybe, like some people say you're allowed to shake hands, but like that's not what works for most people in a relationship. Um, No, so after marriage, I think it makes sense to me. Going with the more, I guess, you know, the more open view, not like the very charismatic view. Um, I think that was a big, that was kind of the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, I guess that would be my kind of my prime example.
0: People don't generally talk about this stage of life where you're still single, but you want to be sexually active, and it's a little bit ignored. You do hear of communities where singles live, and maybe you hear of things happening very often. Shatchanim, Rebbeim, everybody just looks the other way and just tries to set people up until they do get married. And one more point to that. Nobody considers them not from, per se. And they sometimes don't think of themselves as not from, because they'll go to Shabbos dinner, and they won't work on Shabbos, but they'll have relationships. And I'm not saying anything's okay or not for anyone who likes to tear apart things that I say. Meaning you identify uh. as not, orth. I, I don't know how you identify or how you feel. And just this week, Orthodox Conundrum released an episode about people have to say off the dark or whatever. It's everybody's just on their own journey. And there's one massive spectrum. And there's there's no such thing as this is the one dark and this is off the dark. Everybody has their own thing. But it's interesting that you're saying how you left everything, where that you have so many people <laughs> who are just doing whatever they want. And if you ask them, they're like, yeah, I'm from, I'm not from, I don't know. They hopefully marry someone from or Jewish, you know, if if we're picking standards here, and then they fall back into it because Tarasa Mashbacha does work or does make sense, and they do want to continue the Jewish identity and culture for their families and continue that lineage.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. This was actually also something that came up when I left Chabad. Like, people were, like, when I will tell people kind of like, you know, the Lubavitch Rebbe was against a lot of things, like, you know, and, like, it's kind of clear in the It's like, uh, he was against learning Musa and having non-kosher animals and listening to non-Jewish music. So, of course, nowadays, like, you have a lot of people that are like, I don't know, I'm Chabad, I listen to non-Jewish music, or, you know, I'm Chabad and I, you know, this, this, that, and the other. So, for me, I don't know, it might be kind of a more, like, intellectual decision. I'm I'm not really sure, but, like, for me, I think, what I tell them is generally, I think I had more respect for Chabad in leaving than I think some people do in... And kind of staying, because like for me, I recognize like, you know, this is the system. This is what the system stands for. And it says, this is the way that we live. And, you know, if you want to be part of the system, this is what we do. I recognize that that system didn't work for me. So I said, I'll find another system. I never really... I mean, I guess for Chabad, it's different because you're born Jewish no matter what you do. So, I think it's it's a bit more leeway there. Like, you know, God understands that we have our own journey. If you're kind of born into something, whereas Chabad, you could kind of choose. So, for me, I never really, the idea of kind of, I'll stay in the system, but I'll kind of also do whatever. It never really worked for me. It was like, no, like, this is, I respect, this is what the system stands for. That system doesn't really work for me. So, you know, I'll I'll do something else. And by the way, I should point out, I happen to be, I'm very introverted and studious. In my practical life, the sexuality thing isn't that big a deal. I, you know, it's not, I'm not like going out on the weekend and stuff. It's more in terms of the halachic view on it. I definitely, I know and I respect a lot of people who like, you know, they identify as from and, you know, they're sexually active or they, uh, whatever it is, kind of, they don't keep Shabbos here and there or all the time. Uh, for me, it was more that the general halakhic view, and that was kind of one example, I don't really see how it fits in general human nature.
0: Even after was listening like big- to the episode? <laughs> um, I-, I learned yeah. a lot of stuff doing that episode. I should actually re-listen to it because I learn all the time from my guests, but that there were some basic things that just seemed so obvious that weren't obvious to me until somebody explained them. And what I'm thinking of specifically is that maybe these halakhos are there, hopefully they are there to protect the men as well, and probably because then the men would just have a ton of kids they don't know about. But they're there to protect the women, a lot of the halachos in general. And the idea of nothing to everything on the wedding night, the idea is now you're in this safe relationship. Somebody is responsible for whatever may happen out of this relationship, and now it's nothing to everything versus taking that risk when you're not in that committed married relationship.
1: That changed my view definitely on things after marriage, but what if it's a committed I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's actually like I said, this wasn't really the ultimately the reason. This was more just one example of things that I didn't really feel were. Okay, what if like it's work? a committed yeah, relationship and unmarried Yeah, like what if fine. Exactly. The, the thing
0: is, When people bring families in and uh, finances in together and children, when there's more at stake, then it's more of a commitment. And that's usually what happens. I'm not talking about people who have a family and a house and their finances and they go to each other's families for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And they're just legally not married because they're living the married life. But I'm talking about people who, you know, they stay at each other's places. Maybe they have a rental together, but they never really interact with the other family. They also don't own assets together. And then the other thing is if you don't understand it from the male perspective, think about it as a potential father of daughters. Do those laws make more sense to you as these laws being there to protect both women and men. But we can move on now. And I'm not an expert in this field.
1: It's both an upside and a downside that it's more just that was kind of the way I experienced it. And it's the same thing with, I guess, parents and authoritative. Like there were people who grew up with wonderful, loving, authoritative figures who said, "I you know, I love you how you are. So I guess it's an upside and a downside in terms of subjectivity. The upside is that like I could vouch for like that was my experience. Downside is I won't always be able to give kind of like a rational, completely like, you know, it's That was the way I perceived it. I felt it wouldn't work for me. So that's
0: Okay. Once you're going on the emotional, then I can't argue anymore. (laughs) But when you started with the intellectual, I had to bring in my ideas for you. Okay. Let's go. Yeah,
1: definitely. So in Hollywood, and so that was actually a kind of, for a while, I think I actually needed it. It was kind of like Henry James. He has a novel, Portrait of a Lady. And there at the end of chapter seven, these two characters are talking. And one of them says... But I always want to know the things one shouldn't do. So as to do them, asked her aunt, so as to choose, said Isabel. I think that would probably be the biggest reason I would say that I I took the break. It was more that in general, it was all very much forced. And I wanted to kind of put everything aside and see, okay, how much, if any, how much would I do now that I am completely free? on my own in Hollywood and I have the choice and what I began realizing actually, and this is where I guess I'm not kind of the the typical, I didn't just completely storm off. I think what, what was good was that I recognized that there are still a lot of things that I do value about Judaism in terms of community, in terms of learning, in terms of Friday night meals. I guess those are the two things that I could never leave behind learning and like Friday night Shabbat meals or sometimes going to show and singing. And slowly, I also began to realize that the people or like the systems that I grew up with, those weren't everything. And I have to say one particular anecdote, which really I have to share, really stuck with me. I went once to this really nice family in LA and they knew I wasn't observant. You know, sometimes if I want to, like I could kind of pretend and just, but, but they knew I wasn't observant. That was a bit of a walk away. It was like a 30, 40 minute walk from where I lived. So after the meal, I... I, he was like are you walking back like it's 40 minutes like are you walking back so I said I don't know maybe I'll take a scooter and he was like okay and then I saw him a few days later and like this is someone who's completely orthodox married kids you know chill everything keeps everything and he asked me so like did you end up walking last night so I said no I took a scooter and he's like okay phew good I was worried and like for me it's like like imagine like the father comes into your room he's like were you in your room last night it's like no, actually, I, I went out partying in the bar. It's like, okay, phew, I was worried you stayed in your room. It was like... And that was actually, after I kind of was shocked, I was really, that really, that was very thought-provoking. And I sat down and I thought, okay, there are three options. Either what he's doing was not halakhically right. And I'll set that option aside for a minute. Or this person is somehow more loving than God. I, I'm not saying, you know, sometimes I wonder the what God's doing with my life, but generally I don't, I still have an understanding of a God that that's not how he works. Option three is that my perception of God was based on people who had different flaws and that, and my perception of God was wrong. And after a very long think, I think that was the correct conclusion. I realized that God isn't like the authoritative figures I had in my life and you know, he's okay. Like, you know, he's a loving father and he understands I have my own journey and it doesn't have to be like someone else's journey. And another good line I actually heard in Hollywood is that, you know, religion is a journey, not a marathon. And once I understood that, even though practically I think nothing much has changed, it definitely started after that. It was definitely, it was completely, I stopped randomly going places and like having like little arguments with people about Hushkafic stuff I'm slowly kind of coming back at my own pace to oh actually this is another subjective experience which I again people I guess could argue about the interpretation this is the way I understood it I started noticing a pattern when when I wasn't observant that some of the best occurrences that happened to me would happen on like let's say Shabbos or Chagim when I wasn't doing what I guess one quote-unquote should be doing Like, for example, we'd have a composition project and I would be working on it during the week and then nothing would really happen. I would be working it on Chavez and it would just be like some of my best projects ever. And it happened like with a very kind of freaky consistency like over like months when just these random stuff and I was like, wait, but I'm breaking Chavez or whatever, I'm not. Again, I'm sure this is a bit controversial in terms of the way like it was interpreted, even though like I could vouch for the experience. The way I interpret it was like, I understood it that God was trying to tell me and like really remind me over and over again, like, it's okay. You're doing what's right. You know, you're doing your best. I'm not gonna, like, I'm not these other figures. Like, I'm not gonna punish you for doing what's right. I still want you to be happy, even if you're not doing, you know, like just do your own path. That was definitely a very interesting experience for me. I think that pretty much sums it up in terms of, for, I mean, now I'm pursuing graduate studies. Hopefully, I'm going to go to graduate school in Indiana. Also, film scoring. I'm going to get a master's in the same degree.
0: Okay. And have you done any projects in film scoring?
1: No, I've, I did one project outside of school, but mainly school projects. So I haven't really gotten any like commissions and stuff. Like, st- I mean, and it's very rare too. Like, straight out of school, people don't usually. It's uh, usually something that takes a bit more time and networking.
0: And for anyone who doesn't know what film scoring is, can you explain it?
1: Sure, film scoring is writing music for films. So when you hear the the background music in a film, that's it's a whole art onto itself in terms of knowing what to write and when and how to go about it and creating it. John Williams is the like the famous example. When you hear like people about like Hans Zimmer or like the Star Wars theme. So that's written by someone who does film scoring, a film composer. And
0: after you finish school, do they help you? Do they help place you places, or you're just like every other actress and actor in Hollywood who's trying to get an audition?
1: They so the school I went to, they were actually they have a, a system. Usually, they to help you get business. I it happens to be I'm very. I'm a bit more, like, studious. I always kind of... Books was always my my comfort. So I chose on my own kind of to leave Hollywood. I mean, also, it's not the cheapest place to live in. I really want to hang on to the world of academia and study as much as possible. One doesn't have to go to graduate school. Like, film scoring is like any art. They don't really care about the degree. You know, if you could deliver, then that's fine. But I really... I love kind of studying, like, really the orchestra and different stuff. So... So You'll end up being uh, a
0: professor at one of these graduate programs the,
1: hopefully i mean maybe i'll be a film composer i just i I want to learn for a bit longer before i have to go and network and all that stuff cool
0: okay so back to our conversation talk to me about what what it was like more in hollywood yeah
1: hollywood i i think actually my religious journey also i think it, it, it was a very specific hollywood thing i was discussing this recently in my apartment complex. There's this really nice Israeli girl who was staying there. Also kind of, and it was interesting seeing the different perspective on the same thing because she grew up completely secular. I think one of the things that really kind of helped me realize, and from what I've read about other people who who go off the desk kind of sometimes helps a lot of them realize or like to go back, is kind of seeing a lot of the Hollywood life and I was like, okay, I have all the options. I could try everything. Let's try it, see if it works, and see if I'm happy. And one thing that I kept coming back to was, I don't know, I just kind of realized a lot of the shallowness of a lot of it. And I'm not saying outright, you know, all the secular people. I know a lot of secular or Christian people who have incredibly meaningful lives and are some of the most mature people I know. But
0: we are talking but, about the the yeah, exactly. of shallow.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah as they call it and one thing i kept thinking of a lot actually in another play by Ibsen, in dollhouse in the last act basically it's this woman who's kind of taking her husband's task about like that he wasn't there for her and at one point he kind of he, he gets fed up and he says how unreasonable and how ungrateful you are nora have you not been happy here so she says no i have never been happy i thought i was but it has never really been so and he says not not happy and she says, "No." only merry. I would think about that line a lot when I was walking through Hollywood kind of on the weekends. I don't know. I looked at the people and they didn't seem happy. They seemed merry.
0: What does that difference mean to you?
1: I think merriment is more of like a forced exuberance, whereas happiness is more of like a contentment that you kind of feel that you're doing something meaningful in life. It could be just because I'm introverted. I understand a lot of extroverted people; they get their energy from being in, you know, in, in situations like that, and they genuinely, you know, they they have you know a night out with the girls and they go out to the bar and stuff like that. So that might be part of it. That is just personally for me as an introvert. It's not, but I don't know. A lot of it, it just seems. It, I, mean, it's, I mean, the world
0: does put a big emphasis on being happy, and that's how half of the commercial industry works. This will make you happy. That will make you happy. Buy this. Buy that. Buy that. Right. That's how marketing works. And with Judaism, I, I don't think happiness is a goal anywhere.
1: I think Jonathan Sachs, he points it out. He, he, there are those famous like these words that can't really be translated. I think Jonathan Sachs points at, points out that simcha is really kind of an untranslatable word. And it's like joy shared. And that's kind of one of the fundamental things, which and this I wouldn't say Hollywood. I think this is a general like a Western society that kind of forgetting that a lot of the that we're we're social animals and that part of the joys that we find in life are things that we experience with other people and not in, the, not in the sense of like, you know, clubbing and stuff like that with other people, more in the sense of really getting to know someone, like really having the value, like what they say, the value of face-to-face interactions versus technology. I guess that would be, oh, now that I think, it, I guess that would be a good analogy of the difference between happiness and merriment. Like it's a difference between having a face-to-face conversation to someone who's texting them it kind of it fulfills the same kind of basic itch, but it doesn't have like the layers, like the richness to it of like the really feeling that one is doing something meaningful in life.
0: I like that the explanation.
1: So in terms of so you're asking about Hollywood, th- I think that was a very big experience because it wasn't like I felt, well, you know, it's just because I mean, you should even know I don't have the, all these options if I had all these options. I would be happy. Or if I was able to choose my own religious path, I would be happy. It was really just Hollywood was the first time. Also in Yeshiva University, I was still kind of in a bit of Yeshiva system. I mean, you know, people could do whatever they want while they're there. It's not, you know, they're, they obviously, they keep their hands off. But that was like the first time was just like, here it is, everything you wanted, figure it out and see how it makes you feel. And then I was able to choose and I was able to kind of, and still now I'm going through it because I'm have still like mostly non-observant, but it's more like an intellectual change, like recognizing that, you know, my higher power isn't what I thought it was. And the from community isn't what I grew up with. Also, I guess the kind of the Vienna from community was a bit also stricter. So I have to say the Los Angeles from community, I have to say it's one of the best communities I've ever been in. I don't know if i would have had the same experience in other places they have a lot of different groups of people and also each of those groups is also open to a whole bunch of different groups of people so it's not like some places where you have either one group or you have a lot of groups but they're not really talking to each other so yeah los angeles community was really an incredible incredible place and that definitely helped a lot of my religious journey
0: Okay, talk to me about your relationship with your parents now and maybe how it has evolved or maybe it hasn't.
1: I have to give them credit. They've definitely, from when I grew up, it was literally night to day in terms of like they've really done a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And I'm not just saying this because they're still around and might listen to the podcast. Like they they really, I have to give them credit in terms of just recognizing that things weren't always the best in terms of religious acceptance and making amends for that. Like I just spent five months at home now and it wasn't the best five months because just I wasn't productive. So that was just, but that was kind of a separate factor. I was just kind of waiting to do work or do something between undergraduate and graduate school. But like it was, you know, it was, it was fairly okay. And I also began realizing a lot of stuff that I was just, even while I was home, that I was just kind of, you know, doing on my own, even though I didn't really have to. It's still kind of, I mean, generally when one is my age, just sometimes there's just people begin kind of having a bit of distance. And I definitely, sometimes something that people forget is that if let's say I hurt someone and then I change, I could have changed now for five years, but sometimes it's important to realize that like, that other person still might be dealing with stuff from the five years ago. And it's not always like, like now that I've changed, I want, I want everything to be okay. So that's something I'm still kind of working on, on my own kind of keeping a healthy place where I don't feel that I'm kind of doing anything I'm not comfortable with or like rushing into something where I still have a lot of childhood trauma or stuff like that, that I'm working on.
0: Are you comfortable sharing some of that childhood trauma? Or are you talking about that rigidness?
1: it was that religious there was unfortunately there was also some a decent amount of like there was a decent amount of like there was some physical and emotional and verbal abuse
0: from your parents yeah to you exclusively or to everyone in your family
1: it, it wasn't really to me exclusively however it was me and one other sibling I, I guess it was definitely then dip, kind of very dependent on religious observance so even though like I think you know, a lot of us had our fair share. The siblings who like the farther away you went from religion, I I guess I went from religion, I guess the worst it got. So because it happened to be that I, when I was like, what, 14, 15, I started kind of rebelling pretty badly. I got a, me and like one or two other siblings kind of, who also chose a similar path kind of got the heavy brunt of it. Not because, you know, just randomly, but I mean, not that that's the best reason to, but that was so I got a pretty heavy brunt of it.
0: Like as an adult, they hit you, or it was, or they were saying.
1: Uh, no, no, no. So that th- that was something that was that stopped actually pretty early. I'm very happy with that. It was more a lot of kind of when when people aren't accepted for, and like people could tell where there's favoritism, and when like you know the the, the yeshiva kid is getting more affection than another one. People notice these stuff, and everybody says like, you know, I love everybody equally, but like, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times that isn't the case. A- and also, it was kind of a bit of a combination because I think. Some people have it okay at home and they don't have it okay at school. Some people have it okay at school and they don't have it okay at home. I think one thing that also made it a bit more difficult was that also in school and in yeshiva, it wasn't much better because I was generally very quiet. Yeah, so I kind of, I, I don't, some of my coping, like, you know, I, I turned to books a lot and I was very kind of into myself. And so I think it was the combination of that, that it was just like not much at home and not much at school. And again, I don't. I don't really believe in you know, Prince Herring everything out and being resentful. I one of the lines I try to live with in um, Shantaram. I think it's chapter twenty-two. He says, "If you turn your heart into a weapon, you always end up using it on yourself." So, even though I'm not observant, like I haven't watched *My Unorthodox Life*, I in general, I, I don't really read the, those kind of books because I don't really. I'm like obviously, I'm sharing with you what I went through, but I don't ultimately, you know, i'm 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 not really a school of resentment type in terms of i I think it's going to it's it's going to ruin me more than it's going to ruin the people who the people who did anything
0: That's very impressive by yeah. the way, Thank that you. you didn't watch or engage with that genre in general. Mm, and and your siblings, do you have good relationships with them?
1: in a family of thirteen, I think in general, it's difficult to maintain the same quality of relationship with everybody. I'm still shocked. My mother remembers all the birthdays. And heck, I don't even remember all their ages. I mean, also once you leave the house, kind of you don't really know any of them as well. Like the younger ones generally
0: No, but the kids around your age, the ones you grew up with.
1: Not the older ones, unfortunately. They were kind of also kind of a bit cruel sometimes.
0: They shut you out. Yeah, it was
1: like now I'm 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 really spending a lot of time kind of going over these stuff and in retrospect I recognize like when I think about like, you know, grandparents and stuff like that. I know often that like I could kind of empathize, like, you know, my older siblings kind of the way it's like when people feel overpowered, then in order to maintain some sense of control, they'll try to have power over someone else. So I'm kind of beginning to understand that now. On the other hand, like, you know, pain is still pain. And it's I just don't feel that it's right for me right now where I am in my life to maintain some of those relationships.
0: And when you were home for five months, did you ever have deep conversations with your parents or it was just co-living would you participate in shabbos meals and singing for or did you just stick to yourself and leave
1: shabbos meals generally i kept that's something i still enjoy it was actually kind of a very interesting twist of irony i um like i taught my family which is like it's a very like it's a hasidish nigan and like i'm like the none of the own kid i'm teaching because i again that's a song I i heard that in Karen and I love it. There were definitely conversations about where things were standing. And again, like I do have to just state again, things have completely changed now and they're, they're really much better. But generally, because a lot of the things that I get enthusiastic about is more like learning stuff. Those are things that unfortunately I can't really share that much. Either it's because it's fields that they're not really into, or whatever it is like fashion or classical music or a whole wide, wide variety of stuff. Or it's because, like, I know, you know, like, I'm I'm living in their house, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. I'm not going to share, like, oh, I heard this really cool thing that basically five billion years ago with this thing. I know it's not going to, you know, I respect in a community where people believe that the world is 5,000, what is it, 783 years old. Like, you know, that's, not, like, you know, with the trip is very strong against evolution, like, that's not going to go down well. So th- there was definitely a lot of things that I stifled and kept to myself. Overall, I would, you know, it, it wasn't too so bad. There were with a lot of conversations about, I just decided to have conversations about other stuff that they could relate to and worked out pretty well.
0: Nice to hear. Okay, talk to me about where you see yourself now and your future. Like, what, what do you want? Because you don't identify or appreciate the genre of the ex-Orthodox memoirs and TV shows. I'd just like to hear where you're now or where you think you'd want to be. Where would you like to end up? Are you secretly hoping somebody's going to set you up with somebody who's sort of like doing what you're doing and i don't want to put words in your mouth but do you want to marry somebody who completely is from a different world similar experiences but maybe totally separate and different or are you looking to sort of fit into some criteria that still allows you to consider yourself that you're part of the jewish tribe
1: well i guess i that's very simplistic just to take the general things that people ask by i definitely think i would marry jewish regarding from I don't know and honestly at this point it's like they have in the 12 step you know whatever it is I turn everything over to my higher power for now I'm just kind of focusing more on building myself up than on relationships so I really I'm trying as much as possible not really to think about it and well I guess this is kind of important the reason I'm doing that is because for a while I for a very long time actually I was just in order to kind of fill up the emptiness or pain i was chasing one relationship after another and getting kind of into some unhealthy ones
0: were any of them long term or they were all short term
1: um no mainly short term longest one was like a six months and eventually i began realizing that there were just patterns that i inherited or patterns that i kept repeating which weren't serving me well in relationships can you share yeah i kept on chasing after unavailability which apparently is very common like when people have low self-esteem and Even if you give them something good on a golden platter because they don't believe that they deserve it, they'll find some way to like, no, thank you, or to drop it or something. So even when things were perfectly fine, I would kind of just find some way to sabotage it. Yeah. Or on the other hand, sometimes things weren't fine. And my friends were telling me like, this is not, this isn't what you think it is. And they're like, no, but this is normal and stuff like that. And then kind of ultimately I would realize that they were right. So, for now, oh, I'm not really answering your question. So, for now, I'm kind of just really focusing on all the self-help stuff and kind of developing it. I think I want I would marry Jewish. I don't really know in terms of what the family would, you know, what it, what it would be like. Would it be somebody who also had a, a similar journey or what? I want to just leave that behind me and marry someone from... Now, I'm going to graduate school, so I don't know exactly how... The, like, I do want to... And this, I, this isn't even kind of unorthodox. I think this is just basic Rambam. I think a person should have a job before getting married. That's something I definitely want to be at least financially stable. I do want to have kids and have a family one day, but uh, I'm not quite sure with whom yet.
0: That's okay. Did I invite you on or did you want to share your story? What was the inherent desire to want to talk about and share your journey with us? If I remember correctly,
1: I reached out to you initially because of just... About music. Yeah, networking. exactly, just to offer. And then I don't remember exactly. And then I think what... I had that thought, but I wasn't going to go for it. And then I remember when you said something like, I'm going back to the email, something like you said, your story sounds very interesting and deep. So then I was like, oh, actually, you know, what? maybe it was. Maybe I should to talk about it. Yeah. So I definitely think there was a lot of interesting things that happened there and a lot of incredible people. Another thing actually, which I think would, would help the listeners a lot, which was really a key moment in my life. I was, this was actually in Yeshiva University. And this is something I would say more to teachers because uh, I think this is something I've noticed a lot. I OTD to these stuff, people, especially when they have like questions about religion, they, sometimes there's a lot of stuff about teachers there because ultimately, you know, a lot of the education we get is from teachers. There's a professor, I might as well say his name he was incredible because it was a positive story, Shalom Karmi. She would edit some of her Solveig's papers. I took a class with him once on EOV and then there was the final and I asked questions in the class and I participated. But I didn't really think anything of it. After the final, there was a proctor doing the final. So, after I walked out, he was waiting outside. And then I'll never forget it. He he said to me, I want to stay in touch with you. You're a very valuable person. And I was just like, it's like when parents, sometimes when they're randomly negative, then the kids don't really know how to react. And they just always, they're always tense. I think there's also a very, I would say this, I guess, to if there are any teachers listening, like that quiet kid or the kid who's like asking questions, neverably, there's a story of Rav Shach that once, when he was like in a hundred, he was like a hundred or something, uh, someone kept knocking on the door and he got up to, and his Gaba asked later, asked him like, you know, you're like, you're sick. Like, why did you get up? And he said, you never know what kind of broken heart might be standing behind the door. So I, if I had that option, I would, that's something I would, tape on like every classroom everywhere
0: you have to listen to our education episodes that some of them didn't happen how teachers are so stressed out underpaid and they're supposed to teach everybody a lot of things they don't want to learn in a very short amount of time
1: fair enough that was definitely that was something nobody had ever said to me before yeah and it was also out of nowhere like it wasn't like i was kind of fishing for a compliment or i was trying to do something and i saw it coming it was just after a final and i was just a class that i had kind of asked questions i didn't really know that was something I definitely, like teachers definitely shouldn't underestimate the value of what they say. And like the random quiet kid in the class, like you never know, both positive and negative. That was definitely a, a key moment. And you, I mean, he was an incredible person. There is one more thing actually that I would like to share. And this is probably the main reason that I thought of going on your podcast. As you heard, my religious story, it wasn't really, I don't think it was, you know, that kind of interesting in comparison to some of the other ones that are now being publicized. You know, I'm a fairly studious person and I love that. And I cherish that about myself. It just happens to be that in terms of like uh, rebelling was more like, you know, I, I sat and I read when I was in yeshiva and then I went off the derath and I just went to college and continued to sit and read. I think I've had an interesting life. I just don't think that my religious journey was the most interesting part of it was more in terms of like the places that I've been to and people that I've met and the different views that they've given me on uh, life and stuff, and also my musical journey, which I think was pretty interesting, but the main thing that I think what I wanted to share, which has helped me, but on the other hand, which I don't see really being thought about in culture is about not being resentful. I think that is something that I would say either other people who have gone off the Darif or people just in general, even who are on the Darif, but just, you know, have legitimate grievances against people who have seriously wronged them is like just do your best. These people have already deprived you of a childhood, like don't let them by virtue of existing, deprive you of the rest of your life. And I know it's tough. And I've had the times where you're just lying awake till three in the morning and all the ghosts of everything that people have done to you are sort of screaming that, you know, now the rest of your life is wrong because of these people and it brings up legitimate anger. And I know that. And I would also have to admit that even the things I went through weren't as bad as the things that I know that some other people, like you read about Vincent, or like people who have been like seriously like sexually abused by, religion. it could be a Rebbe or a teacher, or God forbid, like a, a parent or sibling. Or, um, And I was very lucky. I haven't had that happen to me. So obviously, obviously you no, know, I can't judge. But that was just something that I've really found that the choice we make between hating and not letting it take over our life. That's really, it kind of become the story of our lives. That was actually the main reason that I brought the example of Prince Harry, because that's something that like, I'm an American. I grew up in Europe. I don't read the news. I don't really, I don't care at all what happens. Like I don't have any feelings either way about the British monarchy. And I only know actually from the, uh, the Prince Harry thing very, very vaguely from like people mentioned it. And when the book came out and I found out roughly what it was about, I made a conscious decision to refuse to read it. I just decided. My family has wronged me, but I don't want to go down that path of just like airing it out to the world or even nodding it out to the world and like that whole path of being resentful and just, you know, letting it take over the rest of my life and blaming people. And I think that is the biggest thing that I would share because that is an approach that I find is becoming increasingly rare nowadays. And that was something that I just wanted to share with your listeners.
0: We spoke for a long time and it was really enjoyable and interesting as I predicted in my email. Thanks for reminding me about it. <laughs> and Deep, thank you for coming on. And do you want to shout out your music services?
1: I actually, most of my stuff, like I said, it was school projects.
0: But when you reached out to Network, what were you hoping?
1: So, yeah, so that I was definitely hoping. One thing I realized was that that there probably aren't a lot of people who both like grew up with a lot of like the From Music really have kind of that was all i listened to and also have a solid education in terms of orchestration and arrangement and stuff like that so i've been wanting to offer people who have any projects or arranging or stuff that i'd be glad to help in terms of like some of the more technical aspects or sometimes even like uh, lyric writing or stuff like that my instagram is just at shmully myers
0: yeah we're, we're gonna link your instagram
1: i don't have much of my music there but yeah sure if anyone has any project then i'd be glad to help with it
0: thank you so much molly this was great. We wish you good luck with everything you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks for listening until the end. Next week, we will have a restream of an older episode. I hope you have a beautiful Pesach. Please keep reaching out with your incredible feedback and your warm messages. I'm wishing you all a Chag Kasher Vesamech and a good yente. See you next time.